You will not take a lazy person and make them work hard. And you will not take someone who has no integrity and give it to them. You are banging your head against a brick wall. And worse, you're diluting your culture. So just say no to these people. And you have to obviously believe at the same time that you can find great people. But I promise they're out there. You can find someone who is that as talented as the difficult character you've got working for you, who also has wonderful character and will do any, you know, anything for you. Those people are out there as long as you're prepared to keep looking and say no to the wrong people. That was the first thing and the most important thing, Mark, and I ever learned, I think. Welcome to Beeline, a podcast brought to you by the Hive Change Consultancy and hosted by its CEO, Andrew Tilling. In this ever-changing, unpredictable world, how do we as leaders make sure that we are enabling our teams making a positive impact and navigating towards success? How do we ensure we're the kind of leaders that people want to follow? In order to address and answer some of these questions, we have put together this podcast series and invited some passionate and knowledgeable change makers to help us find the beeline, the simplest way to bridge the gap between pain points and solutions, and to give you the resources to support your leadership journey. Beeline, lead the way. Years ago, when I was penniless and uh, trying to switch through a changing career, I decided to have a go at face-to-face fundraising. And I was out there being one of those really annoying people with a clipboard who tried to sign you up for a charity and absolutely loved the experience. One of the biggest things it taught me when leading a team was that when things are really hard and you seem to be getting a lot of rejection and there's frustration and you feel like all your motivations disappeared, sitting down and thinking about why you're there in the first place makes a huge difference. I've seen performance turned around time and time again, simply by looking at the purpose of the organization, the impact that it's making, the difference it's making to people's lives, And once you connect with that, suddenly all the motivation is there when you need it to deal with that difficult turn. Now, that sense of purpose has guided my work in every organization I've worked in since. And two people who really know that sense well are our guests today on Beeline. Their work has spanned the fundraising sector, and it's also moved into consultancy and coaching, helping organizations to connect with that purpose and use a principled approach to achieving sustainable success. So it is my great pleasure to to meet two people who we've shared so much industry experience together, but never actually met. So it's a joy to have you here on Beeline. It's Mark Nesbitt and Thomas Labor. Welcome to Beeline, guys. Hi. Thank you. Thank you so much. So tell me a little bit about what got you into, well, one, that fundraising space, and then how that's now translated to you helping other organizations to connect with their sense of purpose and and help them make a difference too. Well, I, I'll, I'll take this one to start with. So, I mean, my, for me personally, you know, I, I knew I wanted to work in the charity sector somewhere uh, when I left university. I did an environmental science degree but yeah, didn't actually do anything with that and fell into face-to-face fundraising. I think a lot of us uh, just sort of found ourselves there as, a, you know, you know, we, we thought we'd enjoy um, as a first step. Um, and that's where Mark and I met working for Push Consultancy, um, which was one of, I think, the second business in the UK uh, did face-to-face fundraising. We worked there for a few years. Mark ended up as the operations manager there. Um, I, he was my boss, in fact. And we we felt that the company did a lot of things wrong basically. And and so we decided we wanted to go and try and do it well. And, and that's why we went and, and set up on our own yeah, a long, long time ago now, 2003, I think it was. We definitely did not do it well to begin with, but that, that's another story. But uh, <laughs> uh, but we certainly had the intention. Uh, so yeah, that, that's that's our origin story, I guess. There is that, that moment, isn't it, where when you are doing something like face-to-face, uh, where you have to look at, okay, well, hang on, how am I going to go about doing this? Am I going to be going after the short-term results or am I going to do this in a way which is which is very real? And I remember when I was starting out, there was a, I mean, there was a nationwide hate campaign really for for um, chuggers, as they were, they were called in the press. Um, and I had to really do some soul-searching to decide, you know, 
whether or not this is something this was a fight I wanted to fight and I decided it was <laughs> yeah. because you know if you do do it well and you're having those those very human connections you are truly enabling people to to contribute to something that's really personal to them and and you know really impactful too so I mean that was a those are important moments I think in those decisions that we make what what made you what made you kind of double down and commit Mark what was what was it that that pulled you in it's interesting because um the charities themselves you talked earlier on about the purpose of the charity you know the end user if you like that kind of sense that there are people out there who are less fortunate than our than ourselves that galvanized not just me but it galvanized every good fundraiser because they wanted to make a difference to people that they weren't in contact with that it was it was you know really inspiring the public to tell them a story to say there are people out there in the world that are less fortunate and we need your help and so I kind of had this dual sort of sense of inspiration from you know the purpose that I couldn't see but also the fundraiser in front of me who was putting that message across that that was inspiring me and yeah I, I think it's very difficult to go beyond that inspiration what is more inspiring than another human being trying to help somebody that is somewhere else in the world who needs help can you can you tell me anything more inspiring than that so uh you know it's really 20 years worth of feeling great you know for me it was a real kind of it's well an inspiring environment to work in the people that i met were relationships that that i took with me so i mean i imagine then that your your network has been a big part of the success that you have within that organization but, but i mean did you see that there was a lot of churn or did people kind of stick with it and stay with it yeah i think there was at first when we were going about it in the wrong way i think there was a lot of churn because we didn't know business principles well uh, as i said earlier you know we entered with with good intentions believing and, and to your double down point we knew it could be done well and no matter what the public perception was you can, you can run a restaurant badly and you can run a restaurant well and if you really care about it if you really believe in it and to your point about you know a higher calling a, a purpose if you really believe in something and you know the people around you believe in that then then you can do it wonderfully wonderfully well but it took us quite a long time to find the discipline i think to make a lot of very tough decisions about making sure we had the right people uh, and once we got that right then then people did stick around so i'd say for the first five years we had churn but for the next 15 years once we had learnt a great deal we found fantastic fantastic people you know it's a long conversation as to what makes something fantastic but that certainly includes um ensuring that they had that they shared that same passion and then yeah we treated them right and created an environment in which they thrived in which they were doing a, a job they were exceptional at and supported to do that uh yeah they, they they stuck around for years which is unusual yeah i think so i think so because i mean let's let's boil it down to sign of brass tacks language i mean yeah this is a selling job which um is going to have a relatively low level of commission given that you know with fundraising and that's part of getting it right is making sure we're actually enabling the organizations right it's, and yet when you're delivering that great return on investment for charities you're still driving people to do a lot of work often people are working longer hours than are on the books in order to to go out and deliver on their targets it's raining or you know it's frustrating it's difficult there's a lot of rejection and yet people stick with it what, what is it what what are the principles that you think really create that longevity and and really unlock that that choice to put the effort in to stick with something and, and make it work it's a good question and it's is one that requires you know multiple ang there's multiple angles but the first angle really is about the individual and making sure that we select individuals who are naturally talented at talking to strangers being able to deal with the rejection and are able to inspire and tell stories so you know there was lots of people with huge hearts who would come and want to become fundraisers and within hours they recognize there's absolutely no way that they can do it probably 
certainly more than half of the fundraisers would hit the ground running that that would stick you know for 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 months and years at the job it it was just it just it was a natural thing you know talking to people was a natural thing so that's the first thing but you you'll know yourself from you know being involved in leadership and culture who you're working with the kind of characters that you're working with the kind of team leader that you have the manager that you have they impact significantly on how good you feel about yourself and the work that you're doing mm. so we were just very very lucky to have stumbled upon the sort of narrative of culture comes from having the right leadership and then making sure that we selected team leaders who were good at leading and what we could see in the industry was lots of people who would hire fundraisers who would be amazing the top sales people and then promote them to be the leader and they just didn't have leadership skills mm. they were often very ego driven very very good at stopping people and signing them up but lacked empathy for how their other teammates were getting on and ultimately we know that leadership is about focusing on your team and not on yourself so we learned that quite early on and so we selected great people and then when we selected great people as leaders we then created this culture this sort of incubation if you like where people were nurtured to be the best possible version of themselves and it sounds simple and actually in some ways we we tried to make it simple you know it was like yes you have that talent so you've got that job no you haven't so you haven't got that job and be disciplined around that and that's why we created high performing teams high performing for 19 years in an industry where people were setting up companies and growing them massively and then you know they were they were disappearing so that that i think is 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 kind of paramount to our to our success you know it is just to, to add to that mark just a couple sorry andrew just a couple of other points to add i mean I mean, it's two things you mentioned interestingly in you know in your question, which we didn't do. We did not pay commission. We paid no performance rate of pay of any sort, and we didn't have targets. Now, those are two very strange statements, I think, to any anyone running a sales company. You don't pay commission of any sort, and you don't have targets. You know, it, people tend to look at you like you're a little insane when you say it. But again, because we were so uncompromising about who we took on. And because we made sure they really cared about what they were doing, so they, they shared our passion and they had the talent that Mark's talking about. And they had the drive to just simply do a good job, which by the way, is I think that make people recognize that far more than they think they do. So most people don't get paid commission to do their job. And yet we all know people who work more hours than they should all the time, simply because they have a very, very strong work ethic. And so we didn't need it. We didn't need you know, we had the high, exceptionally high performing people who were just doing it because they cared and because they had a, a strong work ethic and because they had the talent to do it. Now, what, you know, what, the one important thing to point out in all of this is we remained a quite a small company because because we had such high standards, it was very difficult to find uh, a lot of people and grow. Um, and that's why we survived as long as we did, because I think a lot of the companies, as, as Mark alluded to, that we that failed, they were tempted by the short term profit to grow. Because uh, the fact is, you could put a fundraiser out, you know, on the street or a salesperson out on the street tomorrow, and you'll make money from them, you make profit from them. But if they're not talented, if they're on character, and they're difficult to work with, uh, then then you're just eroding your culture. And, and so our discipline around that, I think, is really what uh, gave us our longevity. There's so much in there to unpack, uh, Thomas. It feels like, you know, the, there's that Daniel Pink presentation years ago. I think RSA did an animation on it around yeah. what what drives us as, as humans and what drives performance, right? And if I'm remembering right, it's kind of like if you're doing short-term repetitive behaviours right. that we don't really need to think about, then yeah, you can kind of coin-operate people. You know, they'll they'll work a little bit harder in order to to get the just a little bit more pay. But if it means I've got to work really really hard to get the big one, I probably won't bother too much. And yet. If it's something that is complex and if it requires thinking and heart and and creativity and yeah. which I think in many ways, certainly fundraising, often sales falls into. Yeah. Actually the financial incentives end up disincentivizing oh, us. Absolutely. 
And the minute you take the money issue off the table, it gives people, if they are connected with what it is that they're doing, yes. all that that freedom to kind of get those juices flowing. It, is, is this what we're speaking to? I'm seeing lots of big nods here, so I'm, I'm guessing that's touching on something. Absolutely. It, it, you know, there's that notion of, you know, if, if you're creating a transaction relationship, you know, if you're, if someone's doing something, it's like, you know, do we parent because we love our children or do we parent because we're paid to do it? If, I, if our child said, dad, can you be a slightly better dad and I'll give you five pounds? That doesn't make you a better dad. It, it makes you think, what well, on earth is wrong with my relationship when my child's paying me money to do something? So, you know, that, <laughs> but, but that's true of teams. If you've got a, if you've got a, you know, wonderful people around you who you respect and offering them money is a cheap, cheap thing, it's a cheap way to treat somebody. And it's also promotes selfishness. And, and again, if you want teamwork, it's very difficult to create any sort of uh, sort of incentive uh, system that doesn't have sort of perverse outcomes in, in, inevitably. So, yeah, simplify it, throw it all out, stop making life difficult for yourself and, and, and just treat, just make sure you've got very hardworking people and be uncompromising around that. And then, as Mark said, you know, it's, it's about keeping it simple, really. We get out of bed in the morning and want a purpose in our lives. That's what human beings want. Money is not a purpose. It's, it's, a, it's a valuable thing that we can do stuff with but it is not a purpose. You, you have to give people a, a, a good reason. And in fact, you don't have to give them a good reason. You have to give them a place where their already existing purpose can come and thrive. I think that, that's the truth of that. A lot of individuals I find tend to have uh, their first moment when they think about, okay, what is my purpose and why am I here and what am I for? And all those kind of big life questions come in. And yeah, I, in fact, I've, I've done this with leadership levels as well. People kind of go, yeah, no, I'm not really one to have a life purpose. I don't do that kind of thing. It all seems a bit airy. But in reality, when you, when you strip it down to what inspires you in life, often people do say, well, it's my family, you know, and providing the means for my family to do the things that they want to do, something that people can can really relate to. But I often find that there is there's a bit of a deeper level than that, where once we have met the financial needs of our family and our kids are able to go to that club that they want to go to, or you know we know that there's a roof over their head, things switch, it changes, and we start looking for that that deeper level of meaning and that often requires connecting with a larger organization than ourselves, right? So so many people volunteer, for instance, but also we look for not just a job, but what is the job for me or what is it that that is going to be fulfilling for me? And I think organizations that don't have that, who are simply leveraging people's need to be economically viable, right, will probably get far more churn um than than those who are um actually giving people that sense of 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 longer purpose and that ability to be part of something bigger right and uh, i'm wondering if that's kind of tapped into um some of that that empathy and that willingness to look out for the team and recognizing that they are part of something bigger that you were speaking to mark yeah absolutely <clears throat> and i think um when you're running a business um if you want to have longevity in that business then for me success came from treating the people that work with us as part of our extended family but not like in a sort of Machiavellian way but like gen I actually still in contact with the managers that work with us for 10-15 years because I genuinely wanted to be part of their journey and you know, I'm just thinking of my um, my managers in in Bristol. They uh, they started off as fundraisers in London. They met each other actually on the street fundraising. Uh, they left uh, and, and worked in a telephone agency. And then when we wanted to launch in Bristol, I I reached out to them. We met, and they were like, Do you know what? You know, I want to move back to Bristol, where I'm from. And then they went to Bristol, and then they had two kids, and then they, they moved on with their life. And and watching that. At development right over over the generations from 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 a sort of you know young 20 or something year old to someone who then gets married and has kids i mean that that's just a beautiful thing to be part of and there's many many of the many more stories like that but just seeing people pro progress and, and develop themselves and create the life that they want that for me is important and pre pre-covid where 
everyone was just going to work as normal. We had about a decade where we were treating people as individuals. If you wanted to work three days a week to do your job, you could. If you wanted to work four days, you could. If you wanted to work five days. Now, people were doing the same job all around the country, but you could choose what you wanted to do. That's commonplace now, isn't it? But we, we were doing that many, many years ago. And we were doing that because we were tapping into how do we create an environment where people can do what they want within a, the, the constructs of a, of, of a company and still be successful. So it's individuals first rather than what does the company need? Oh, we need to just have everybody working five days a week in order to hit our number. You know, that's it's the wrong way around. And that then created a culture where people wanted to stay. And not only did they want to stay, but they were high performing. So it's interesting. You know, I think... Um... Not trying to be, you know, play the good cop, bad cop game here because, you know, Mark's obviously talks about treating people, uh, you know, like individuals and treating them very well. But just as, you know, being a parent, it, it isn't just about being, uh, you know, being endlessly nice to people that doesn't get you where you want to go. That the most important thing we we realise to protect our good people and, and we, you know, as leaders, we definitely see ourselves as servants to those people. I think that, you know, that really is a very important thing to say. Um, you're not there, you're not their boss, you're there to give give them what they need to do their job. But what, what they need is, a, is other great people to be around. And, and actually, I think it's the people we said no to who were the wrong characters that, that really mattered. If you want to protect someone, they do not want to come to work with somebody who's a horrible person. Just, no matter how high-performing that, how high-performing that individual is, you, you, you have to be prepared to keep saying no to the wrong characters and protect those people. If you really care about people, you protect them. You know, I think if, if there's anything that's sort of made us successful in that time, it was our... Oh, willingness to put our money where our mouth is in that regard we're, we're two very rigorous people who really believe um in you know believe in the values that we have and we follow through on those week in week out and, and it's tempting to, to not do that because as i said earlier you can make more profit tomorrow if you throw five people out on the street or keep someone who's brilliant at their job but you know brilliant fundraiser can get lots of sign-ups but is not a nice human being to be around and time and time again well endlessly we would we were you know we had to make those tough calls um to protect uh, to protect people and make sure we you know they came to a, a, to work in a place where they enjoyed and were respected and it's funny you know i i, I always felt that that environment was a breeding ground for for leadership and for yeah. healthy culture and those purpose-led businesses and this was before social enterprise was really a thing uh, when we were starting out and working on this and uh but I remember writing when I when I wrote my little email to the company as I left to go and set up my own consultancy and indeed married my wife who I'd met Brilliant. fundraising on the street uh, again yes. great relationship uh, but it's um I felt like there was a real responsibility in that environment because it was acting as a bit of a beacon for people who did want to do something meaningful and a bit of a soapbox moment. But I do feel that a lot of people who are now at, well, a bit kind of middle-aged, shall we say, in their career, who have um, come from a world knowing that these problems exist, that sustainability is an issue, that the climate crisis is real that um culture is going to be absolutely integral to the success of organizations the minute you get market fluidity of choice and you know if you've got an environment which is now global and aware of those issues to the point where we've got esg for instance baked into our financing systems you know this is it's real triple bottom line is the way forward for organizations it's a kind of a global choice it's the way that we're going so but if you've been brought up with that, actually looking at the environment that you're in, there's there's not a lot of examples of leadership with those kinds of principles in mind. And sure, you've got the kind of the tentpole examples of, of what it is to be, you know, a, an organization that contributes to the world. But we don't always have to build a Microsoft before we can then go and be, you know, uh, go and do some good in the world, right? That, you know, surely we can do that as we grow our careers as well. So I felt that the, the, for that generation, that face-to-face -face fundraising was an environment which was really attracting people who did want to make some kind of long-term contribution. And it, I think it was quite easy to filter out, <laughs> easy to, to see it, not necessarily easy to, to structure it as an organization, but to filter out people who were there for the fast buck. Yeah. 
and see those who were who were there because it it meant something and it was important and it was that thing that was bigger but now that world is changing people that this language is being used within that business environment and people are thinking about purpose what is it that you're bringing to the mix now in in your role at new leaf yeah well i think the answer to that question is I suppose trying to pass on some of the wisdom that we've learned. I think it's important to say that we actually started two businesses within six months. The fundraising business was was a business that came from, you know, as Tom said, we went to university, we graduated, we got a job as a fundraiser, we got promoted, you know, we ran the company, we grew a company, and then we left to start our own company. But within six months of starting that company, we actually stumbled across a very interesting idea. And it was in Sydney, in Australia, people giving massages to people in bars. And the transaction was, I'll give you a massage, and then afterwards you give me what you think it's worth, right? We, we saw that in Sydney, and we thought, you know what, this is going to be amazing in London. I remember that. Yeah, that yeah? was, that was, that was <laughs> like, oh, what do you mean? You know, you're not setting a price. Yeah, you're just All inviting right. people after you've actually delivered the work to then yeah. make a contribution. I remember that was a that was a viral story. There were a lot of people yeah. really trying to get their heads around that. But we we started that business. Tom and I started that business at the same time as starting our new leaf. It was called Urban Chill. I don't know if you remember the name, but we grew that from literally a piece of paper in a pub to 250 people working all throughout London in bars, exhibitions, festivals, and ultimately then into offices. It was interesting. I was sleeping on my, my friend's sofa at the time. I'd been on there for about nine months trying to set up, uh, set up the business, knocking on lots of charities' doors, who, and everyone just saying, no, 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 you know, you've not experienced enough, blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah, we were just really lucky to stumble across this idea, have the gumption and, if you like, the naivety and the energy you know, in mid-twenties to go, okay, let's just give it a go. Come up with a name, bought some T-shirts, got those iron-on transfers, you know, got our friend to make the logo and ironed it all on and and then sent out a couple of teams, one into Camden, one into Old Street, the massage people, and within seconds, people were giving £10 notes over. And we were like, this is unbelievable. And it was unbelievable back in those days. Very quickly, within months, we had teams everywhere in bars all across London. Wow. And we you know, we were collecting the money, the cash, right? And we just had money everywhere. And we were just thinking, wow, we're going to be millionaires here. That business grew massively. At the same time, we had this fundraising business. And the reason why I started the story wasn't to tell you about Urban Chill, but to tell you at the point at which we learnt the principled approach. It was when we had 100 people fundraising, 250 people massaging, and we were out of our depth. We were just like, how do we get here and where do we go from here, right? And we recognised that we needed help. And one of my friends introduced me to this guy who was running uh, a few businesses, and he started to listen to all the problems that we, ha- we were facing. And he said, I can help you. And so he he started to help us. And so for a period of about two years, he effectively became our coach, our mentor, our advisor. And he was the most intriguing individual. He read business books every single day of his, and still does, of his life. And he really kind of picked out the things that struck a chord. And he taught us those over two years. So it was like a MBA of real life where he was like, okay, now you guys can think about this principle or have a think about uh, adopting this principle. And so we were learning almost on the job how to do things differently to the way that we had grown these two enterprises. And interestingly, when we got to the end of that two years, we really honed back on the numbers of people because it was driven by, success was driven, he taught us, by having the right people on the bus doing the right job. And we recognised that we we were building a house of cards, both companies, house of cards, and we needed to come right back. And so we are 
totally, 100% indebted to our coach mentor, Paul Brown, his name is. You can't work with him because he's fully booked. Like, that's how good he is. Like, he doesn't need any more clients. We, we can't even get to work with him anymore, I don't think, because he's so, he's so successful. Yeah, without a doubt, those principles that we learned were from him. And of course, then, from that moment, for the next decade or so, we put those principles into practice. And that's what creates success, is, is applying that. So when we lost our fundraising business at the end of COVID, because obviously face-to-face -face fundraising was uh, very, very difficult to do during COVID, we decided, what do we want to do? And it was like, well, we love helping people grow and develop. We, we love helping companies grow and develop. Why don't we teach our principal approach to people who want to scale their businesses? So that's what we want to do is teach people like we were taught, because that created so much success for us. We've touched a lot on there. So maybe we can kind of bring this down to business a little bit and kind of go, all right, then. What does it look like when we don't have those principles? when we're not purpose-driven, mm -hmm. how does that play out in our organizations? And I can just pulling out on some of the themes that we've already talked about, but there's things like churn. Um, there are, there's people being promoted because of performance rather than their ability to lead people. Um, we've got sometimes rapid growth that's opportunistic, but um, doesn't consider longevity. Yeah. What else are we seeing? What does what does bad look like when we don't have those principles in place? I think you know the, the term Mark and I use for what's correct, I guess, juxtaposed to what's wrong, is is alignment. So to get the right culture uh, and to to sort of create a, a high performance culture and one in which people you know want to stick around and enjoy working there, you need to get the the systems that you set up, your your own behaviours and the practices in line with each other, in line with your strategy, in line with your values, your your mission and, and your vision of what you want to try and create. I think a lot of the time people start out with money in mind in the first place anyway, but let's let's say somebody starts out with purpose in mind. It's very easy as you grow to be distracted and, and to lose that sense of purpose and, you know, think, oh, we've got financial pressure. We need to do, you know, we just need to get more people out fundraising because we just need to make more profit to sustain and you know, get the company working. And as you do that, you, you slowly dilute you know, everything that you stood for originally. And, you know, to take an example, let's say you're an IT company, an IT support company, uh, and you're trying to create, you know, you set out with the intention of creating a you know, brilliant customer service and, and, you know, a great culture. But you start to think, oh, well, you know, I've heard that paying commission is a good way of getting people to, you know, work harder. Um, so you start to start to pay commission. And then suddenly you're incentivizing people. That system you set up is incentivizing people especially if it's around like maybe the number of, you know, number of people you help in a day, you're suddenly creating this perverse incentive for people to get off the phone and get onto the next call, for yeah. example. You know, that's a small thing, but, it, you know, it starts to erode the, the culture you have. It breaks down teamwork. You know, if you if you start to hire people who also don't share that passion, if you do, and easy, it's easy not to recognise that that really matters, by the way, that selecting people who believe in what you believe matters. So if you start hiring people who don't also share this desire to help others uh, in, in that context, then you, you erode your, your culture further. You also, far worse than any of those things, it, this is sort of a practice rather than anything formal, but if you start giving status to those who are doing performing really well, but if those, especially if those people are cutting corners. So, you know, you start mm -hmm. to say, oh, Bob's brilliant, you know, everyone, isn't Bob great? But Bob's the, the, the one guy that everyone in the room knows he's not really a good guy, you know. He, yeah. He, yeah, he's hitting the numbers, but he's not. he doesn't treat people, treat his customers very well. And then finally, your own behavior, you know, if you, you, you claim you want to create a culture of teamwork, but you don't listen to people, there's all these different ways you can fail, basically. And, and so, you know, that, that notion of alignment is, you know, beginning with saying that what do we what are we trying to be? What do we care about? What are our values? What, what are we trying to create? Why do we want to try and create that? And then find, you know, people who, who, who share that and be just endlessly uncompromising, endlessly rigorous around every element of that and being forcing yourself to be aware of it none of us like facing our failings none of us like to look at ourselves and say oh do you know what? i'm really insecure about the way i look or you know i feel like i never did very well academically or all these all these things that you know, all these demons we have with inside us we don't exercise them because we are scared to face them and you have to be willing to face those demons in business you have to say look we're bad at this we're bad at this we're bad at this and we're going to change you know create a culture in which that happens so when you do stray from the path, you, you, you're you able to pull yourself back to it. 
I don't, I'm not sure I want to answer your question then. But. No, I think this is great. I mean, also, I guess if you've got that teamwork and you're able to listen to your team and, and hear their feedback of when we are straying from those principles because you've got them grounded, then I guess it becomes easier to exercise some of those demons because you're That's being right. called out on it. Right. I mean, you're... Yeah, you're a good-looking fella, so I think we can exercise that that demon, Thomas, about your looks. We'll, we'll put that on, you know, got a live feedback for you there. Thank you very much. Um, that's all right for, for all our listeners. You know, great great face for a podcast. No, uh, um, so I'm hearing that. I, I think there's a feeling that goes with that as well. There's there's almost a. Um, I've seen this in a lot of sales teams. Maybe they'll learn. They're performing, so I'll just justify. Yeah, that's right. Keeping them on because they're performing and we need that performance yeah. right now. And then maybe they'll learn the other stuff and oh, 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 I'll pull you up on it a little bit. But, you know, keep on doing what you're doing because we're paying you to. I mean, this is it erodes, doesn't it? It's it's um, it's it's dodgy yogurt in the pot. It's just yeah, going to create a funny the, culture. The most important thing that we learned, the first thing and the most important thing we learned, as Mark said, is get the right people on the bus. It's a term from good to great, which is yeah, the, the, yeah, Jim Collins' book, which is our business bible, really, I, I, and our most often quoted book on is this it? podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. And and look, the recognition that you cannot change people is probably the most important thing. I think there's this sort of general belief in management that you can a great manager can fundamentally change a, another person, and as soon as you let that go and say, look, we're actually going to make that decision by letting only the right people through the door in the first place that's when you start to do okay because you you can't you will not take a lazy person and make them work hard and you will not take someone who has no integrity and give it to them you are banging your head against a brick wall and worse you're diluting your culture so just say no to these people and you have to obviously believe at the same time that you can find great people but i promise they're out there you can find someone who is that as talented as the difficult character you've got working for you who also has wonderful character and will do any you know anything for you those people are out there as long as you're prepared to keep looking and say no to the wrong people. That was the first thing and the most important thing, Mark, and I ever learned, I think. Yeah. So what else if you don't have those principles in place or what happens if there's no purpose in the organisation? How does that play out? I think people, if, if there's no purpose, <clears throat> then what you'll have is multiple purposes. Every, everybody doing what they want to do for their own sake. So, you, ah. you know, so if that means you've got people who are motivated by money, you've got people who are motivated by, you know, um, being part of a team. You know, we, we often used to find people who loved being part of the team, you know, making sure that everyone's happy and stuff like that. But they weren't good fundraisers, but, they, you know, they were just great for the team sort of thing. So um, that sounds and... like agendas, like multiple agendas, which are going to play into conflict with each other. Yeah, of course, because then you've got things like people wanting to make more money, people want to get promoted, you know, they'll do anything they can to, to do that. But I, I think more than anything, probably a lack of purpose will create perverse outcomes. And those outcomes are not going to be particularly healthy in most instances. And so let's think about using the analogy of the street fundraiser. You can go up to somebody on the street and you can sign them up and you can come away with that donor, that, that intention. Now, that's, there's a spectrum of intention, isn't there? Because we all know that if we sign up to something, we can cancel it as soon as we get home. We can contact the bank or as soon as it's set up, we can just go onto our app and we, we cancel it. Or we can give for 10, 15, 20 years. Now, the financial relationship between cancelling when you walk away and giving for 20 years is <laughs> very, it's like completely different spectrum. You've changed hundreds and hundreds of people's lives in that moment, or you've actually wasted money. So that comes from people doing things in the right way. What is your intention? So if your intention on the street is, I just want to feel good about myself by getting an extra sign up, then you've just signed up another person who's probably going to just walk away and, and cancel, in which case there's no integrity. If you want to make that extra sign up so that you can get extra money, again, you're creating an environment probability that that relationship, that outcome isn't going to be a good one. You know, you're going to feel good, you're going to get the commission, and then people are going to walk away and they're going to cancel. And the same thing is in customer service, right? Or in sales, if you're creating a, a situation where 
that salesperson is selling something that that person doesn't really want and you hook them into like a two-year contract to do something and where does that go you know they're going to walk away they're going to feel disappointed that they've been kind of coerced into something they're not going to feel mm. good about themselves they're locked into something and then you know they're going to tell other people that they you know they didn't really want to do it and so alignment alignment is important uh, for for sure, I, it, it's that alignments. It really does matter, and it's got to be baked into the organisation as well, right? And I mean, it just did. I, I I often ask this question about what's the biggest obstacle that you've had to overcome in order to make a positive impact. And I, I'm going to hijack that question just for a moment and just talk about the biggest obstacle that I ever had to overcome, which was this environment in that face to face world, where those incentives. The fast pace, just the number of charities that we were working on had seemed to quite, quite unexpectedly, I think, created a culture which which was being, I think, taken advantage of in the moment. All that negative press, you know, it was it kind of was beginning to feel like high pressure sales, which was exactly what none of us really set out to do. And you had really good people kind of being morphed by the culture, I think. And when I became trainer in that organization, the first thing I did was throw out the training because the training was all about, here's how you sign somebody up to a charity, right? But the way to sign up somebody for a charity is to give them a pen when they want to do it, right? And what I focused on was, was connection and stories. And we brought it right back to the roots of the biggest client that we were working with, which was Amnesty International. And we basically taught everybody human rights as they came in through the door because once you understand human rights funnily enough every charity kind of makes sense right there's this you can pin it on a, on a human right yet yeah, we're trying to help that because that kind of makes sense right so the minute people got that and they went out the street and, and i want to say you know big thanks to the support that i was given by my md owen watkins who i know is a, is a mutual connection of ours to kind of really endorse that but that big investment and in training and creating that connection and that mindset and, and filling people's minds with stories, real stories that they could then connect to. When they shared the stories that they connected with to the people that they thought would connect with them, suddenly results doubled, attrition drops. People want to stay there because they're connected with it, right? Because it's real, because it's principle-led. And it's kind of the, the, the results follow that connection. The results follow Absolutely. that sense of purpose, right? They do. I don't, I don't, honestly wouldn't know how to run a business that doesn't have a purpose. I wouldn't know how to do it. It would be a disaster. We couldn't help anyone who doesn't believe in that. So you've got people who are committed. You've got people working together, the people being collaborative, people um, are working around something which is bigger than themselves. They're outside of their own agenda because they're connected to something bigger. What else do we see when we see these principles and these purpose within an organization? What does that good look like? Short-term pain. You can't create good without short-term pain. You can't just go, well, here's the principled approach. We know, we've got the formula. And now you just need to apply that formula and you're going to take your business from here to here. No, you're going to suffer because you've got yeah. to make difficult decisions. You've got to, you've got to get rid of your, your top salesperson. You've got to get rid of that person who's been there for 12 years. That's the principled approach. It's not easy. It's really difficult. <laughs> really, there's a great quote. Hard choices, easy life. Easy choices, hard life. Jersey Gregoric. It is all about short-term pain for long-term gain and same as your health same as anything anything in life in fact that we benefit from it, it, it stems from that that discipline oh and, that's and, a bitter pill to swallow gents i was, I was expecting a, you know, it was like a unicorns. punch in the face wasn't it <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, do i have to oh dear <laughs> instant um, disincentivization to do anything worthwhile in the world isn't it but then if we <laughs> but, but, if you have a purpose, you fight through that, right? That's the power. That's the power of purpose. Because when you care, when you believe, you you take those steps. And and as as the leader of an organization, as, as everyone in that organization, you're prepared to make those tough choices because you believe in what you're doing. Firing someone isn't. Well, I mean, we've all experienced it. I'm sure it's not fun. It's oh. horrible to fire somebody. But if you feel truly justified in it, because you know it's the right thing to do, because you believe in the, the purpose of the organization, and they are a barrier to that, then you can make those decisions. And that you know that's one example of many. In, in the end, the profit does come 
from uh, from the purposes. It's a false dichotomy, this idea that, you know, you choose profit or purpose. I think what is true is perhaps you have to have a longer term uh, focus on on that, you know, actually building a sustainable business that's going to make profit for a long time and not you know profit next year. But uh, yeah, in our experience, the more you behave like you almost don't care about the profit and care about the purpose, ironically, the more the money comes in the end. That, that That's our experience. For the, all the reasons we talked about throughout the whole podcast, that, you know, the, the, in terms of who you employ and who you say no to, who the clients you turn down and staying you know, really focused in your, you know, on the thing you care about. Um, that, that's what, that's what gives you success in the end. Yeah. I think the same principle applies to people about being rigorous as it does to finance, you know, being purpose driven doesn't mean you're, you're tree hugging. It means that you're rigorous around why you're there and being profitable is incredibly important for the sustainability of the enterprise. So you need to have a really good understanding of your dashboard and what drives financially your business. So, yeah, I think that might be a, a sort of misunderstanding. And But I think we picked up on the most important thing, which is if you want to have a sustainably profitable, successful, purpose-led business, you need to recognise that you're things are going to have to get worse before they get better. And that's it. So where do you want to go with that? Do you want to do that? Do you want to go on that journey? Because that isn't a month's journey. That's years. That's a year's journey. We think it will take two years to turn a mediocre culture into a great culture. Two years. Work with us for two years and we'll get you to that point. And then it's about how do you keep that going? Yeah. No. So if I have got... If I haven't got two years and I need to get that 20% that gives me the 80%, what is the beeline that gets me from my mediocre business culture to something that's operating with purpose and a principled approach? You need to get help because all of us, including us, by the way, you know, losing a business, you reflect back on what you could do different. There was things that we didn't do. We didn't innovate enough, right? We felt that we knew what we were doing and we were just trying to repeat and repeat, repeat. We needed to innovate more, enough. The, the beeline, I think, is recognise that you only know what you know and there are definitely other ways of doing things. So you need to go and seek out people who inspire you to make those changes. And that's the beeline. That, that's huge. I think that really ties into... The culture point, you know, culture exists, whether it's good or bad, but, you know, it's, but it's going to be the, the, the water that you're swimming definitely, in. Definitely. I mean, we've got a client at the moment and everything that he's doing now working in the business within nine to 12 months, I want him doing none of those things. I want him working on the business. Now I can see through the practical wisdoms that we put into practice ourselves that journey, what he needs to do in order to get from, from here to here, you know? But it's not, as I said to him, it's not going to be something we can do in three to six months. It's a nine to 12 months. It's about stripping back what he's got. It's about, t you know, finding people to take on those, those tasks. It's about empowering them. And there'll be pain along the way because you'll empower someone who then does it, you know, not very well. And then you have to move that to somebody else, you know, so it's a kind of a constant. And what happens then is you've got a leader who has time, right? And what does time do? If you've got the right skills as a leader, you're then focusing on efficiencies, you're focus focusing on opportunities, you're making sure that your best people are really looked after because you're, you've got time. And a lot of people find themselves in a situation where they've grown their business and in growing their business, they've also grown their workload. And that is the way to a heart attack. And probably you'll lose some element of your business. Well, that's going to make me want to switch to decaf. Uh, anything <laughs> else to add there, Thomas, in terms of that beeline? No, I think Mark covered it perfectly. All right, then, guys. Well, then what's the big... We talked about that big obstacle that you've had to overcome mm -hmm. to achieve that impact. What was it for you? And what was the thing that got you through? So this is possibly too cheesy and philosophical, but I'm going to go with it anyway, because I think it's true, is, is oneself. I guess it begins with the knowledge. Once you have that that template, living it week after week, it takes a lot of discipline. 
um, and a lot of, I guess, uh, self-reflection and, uh, and that is hard. Um, and so that's the thing you have to overcome is your, is yourself. Um, yeah, if you, if you do that, if you can become disciplined and rigorous in the decision-making, then you get what you want to get at the end of it. Mark. Yeah, I think it is, it's, um, recognizing that we all have limits and we all have certain strengths and weaknesses and trying to create synergy. So recognizing in your business, in your life, that it's not about you. You have to look for the synergy and where you find the right synergy, you get one plus one equals three or 300, you know? And, and, and so for me, that's big journey. You know, in my twenties, it was all about me. And I, cre I created with Tom's help, two businesses. You know, I thought I was master of the universe. I don't have two businesses anymore. Where am I? <laughs> so <laughs> that's a really good lesson. Life comes from synergy, not from oneself. Um, so find the synergy. So much power in those words and baked in experience is something that I think leaders who are taking that, that big journey and taking that leap to be able to connect with and learn from can make a huge difference. So I've got to say thank you so much to Thomas Labor, Mark Nesbitt for joining us on Beeline. If people do want to find you at New Leaf, how do they find you? Principledapproach.com. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being on Beeline. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Don't miss the next episode of Beeline, when Andrew talks to Michael Frino and Katie Desiderio, co-authors of The Beekeeper, pollinating your organisation for transformative growth. Michael and Katie are experts in organisational leadership, leadership development and transformative growth. If you're interested to know more or could do with a reminder about today's episode or any of the other episodes in this series of Beeline, I've collated some notes, links and resources for you to explore and download at www.consultthehive.com forward slash beeline. The Hive Change Consultancy provides radically effective training, coaching and facilitation that enables a dynamic shift in leaders, sales teams and entire organisational cultures. Get in touch today for an informal chat with one of our team. My name's Gemma Aston. And you've been listening to Beeline, lead the way.